The first reading is from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And the second reading is taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, Lord God, uh, your word is uh, precious and it is your gift to us. And we thank you for this little piece of your word, Romans 12. Uh, Just uh, one verse we're thinking about this evening and yet it holds uh, such treasure. Lord God, would you speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit through your Holy Word and would you change us to become like your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, Kath mentioned at the beginning of the service, our first hymn uh, as we heard, that we heard sung to us was written by a guy called John Newton. And he, uh, many of you will know who he is. Uh, he lived in the 18th century. And he's most well known for being a slave trader who converted to Christianity. In his early life, he was a wicked man. He was violent. He was angry. He was cruel. And then in 19, uh, not 19, 1748 he found himself caught in a terrifying storm on the ship called the Greyhound, just off the coast of Ireland. And the storm was so bad and that the hold was rapidly filling up with water and it looked to everyone like all was lost. Newton hurried to his place at the pumps and he said to the captain, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. And his own words awoke something inside him. Mercy, he said to himself. Mercy, what mercy can there be for me? At about six in the evening, after a whole day, the hold was almost free from water. And it finally began to look like they were saved. He would later say, I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favour. And I began to pray. I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to a reconciled God and call him Father. My prayer for mercy was like the cry of the ravens, which yet the Lord does not disdain to hear. See, this event would begin for him a path which would lead to his conversion to faith in Jesus Christ, which would in turn utterly transform his life. 
He later wrote this of himself. It is certain that I am not what I ought to be, but blessed be God, I am not what I once was. God has mercifully brought me up out of the deep miry clay and set my feet upon the rock, Jesus Christ. He has saved my soul. And now it is my heart's desire to extol and honour his matchless, free, sovereign and distinguishing grace, because by the grace of God I am what I am. It is my heart's great joy to ascribe my salvation entirely to the grace of God. If it didn't happen instantly, but over several years, Newton went from cruel sea captain to gentle church pastor, from a vile blasphemer to a great hymn writer, and from a profiteering slaver to a vocal public opponent of the slave trade. He changed. Now let me ask you, how do you account for such a change in a man? For all that this world wants to discredit Christianity, one thing it finds hard to account for is this. How does someone's life turn around so radically? Newton is only one of many who are changed in this way. Now, the Bible's answer to that, to how people change, is found in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12 and verse 2, which is our text for this evening. Now, in this great letter, over the first 11 chapters, Paul has displayed for us the gospel of God's grace and mercy. It began with our rotten sinfulness and proved our need for salvation. It then showed us the glorious salvation that is offered to us in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ in our place so that we can be declared righteous in God's sight, to get right with God. And then more, as we got to chapters 9 to 11, which we looked at in the evenings over the last few weeks, we saw the sovereign actions of God choosing us for salvation, not because of our good works, but solely and simply because of his sovereign choice. Now as Paul opens up chapter 12, he sums up all of the gospel, all of Romans 1 to 11 in just two words, God's mercy. From this point on in the letter, he begins to show us the effect of God's mercy. When we really grasp God's mercy, the effect it has upon us, he shows us that changes that a full view of God's mercy will make on our lives. Now, if you listen this morning, Robin opened up uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 for us. And we saw in that verse the primary difference our understanding of Romans 1 to 11 will make. The greatest good that flows out of the gospel is that God is glorified by human beings. That God's seen by human beings as he really is in all his righteousness and holiness and goodness and mercy. And that God is glorified as we who have received God's mercy, who've gained that right standing with God through Christ, as we then give our lives over, all of our lives over, to serving him. 12 verse 1. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But how do we, as people who struggle with sin, and people who fall short of the glory of God and are conscious of that, how do we get to a point where our whole lives are devoted to the glory of God in worship? Or in other words, how do we change? And Paul now shows us that in verse 2. And if you look on the inside cover of the service sheet, uh, you can see where we're going. Here's here's the verse. Here's verse 2, first of all. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's what we see in that, in, those, in that verse, what we need to change from, what we need to change to, and then how we make the change. What we need to change from, what we need to change to, and then how we make that change. So first of all, what we need to change from. Now I quite like watching these sort of um, planet Earth type documentary things that David Attenborough does. Um, not everyone in my family enjoys it, but I quite enjoy it. One of the most amazing creatures that God has made, in my opinion, is the chameleon. It's really pretty incredible. This lizard is able to blend in perfectly with its surroundings so well that you can't even see it unless you look really, really closely. And it does, of course, it's a, it's a protection mechanism. It, it's far safer, far less likely to get eaten by something else. So many Christians, so many churches have chameleon-like qualities. They do not look any different from the world around them. They blend in so seamlessly that you would find it hard to tell that they were there. They are conformed to the world, as Paul puts it here. But we need to hang on a minute, because it's very easy, isn't it, to point the finger at others and see how worldly they are. But do you not see this tendency in your own heart and life? I know I see it in mine. Are we not too often, just like everyone else, finding ourselves to be spiritual chameleons? In the workplace, in the pub, on the sports field, in the neighbourhoods, or even in our own homes. Do we not look like everyone else? Now in this letter, Paul has already shown us what the world is like. Like in chapter 1, he described it like this. If you have a Bible, we feel free to turn back. Chapter 1, verse 28. Speaking about world, the people in the world, he says this. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Note that phrase in there, debased mind to do what ought not to be done. We'll come back to that. He goes on. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, 
slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is what the world is like. And too often we are conformed to its pattern. But actually, Paul would want to be clear with us that these more obvious and blatant sins are not the only way to be conformed to the world. He goes on in chapter 2, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. See, Paul would have us see that religious judgmentalism and the pride and arrogance that uh, it comes from is just as worldly as obvious immorality. So conformity to the world, worldliness, it includes both the internal and the external. It includes both behaviours and attitudes. Ungodly speech, ungodly ways of thinking. It includes the area of emotions like anger and envy. It includes the areas of relationships, relationships with authorities, relationships with each other in sexuality, even the way we conduct our friendships. And it's not just what we do, it's also what we don't do. Lack of compassion for the poor is worldliness. Lack of empathy with the suffering. Lack of prayerlessness because we're self-dependent. All these things are worldly. So we find ourselves immersed in the world through the culture, through media, through social media, TV and film and music, and, and the casual chats that we have with our friends. We've bought it from the left, we've bought it from the right, and we've allowed the world to shape how we think, to shape how we, what we value, and to shape how we behave. We've too often become chameleons conformed to the world. And so Paul says, now you have been rescued by Jesus... And now as you want to live a life devoted to worshipping him, that needs to change. Do not be conformed to this world. Now change always takes us from where we are at to where we need to be. And where do we need to be? That's the second point, what we need to change to. Okay, so we've had chameleons. Uh, let's take another creature now, butterflies. So a caterpillar uh, goes from being a fairly ugly creature to a beautiful one, to a butterfly. It's the same creature, there's a continuity of its being there, but it's also radically different and far more beautiful. And the process of change, what do we call that? You remember your science lessons from school? Metamorphosis, well done. Yeah, metamorphosis. Okay, that's, a good, that's a good Greek word, metamorphosis. It's the word translated transformed here in this uh, verse. 
Now, in, that, in the Bible, this word is used in two other places. And the first is at the transfiguration. Do you remember that story? So Mark's Gospel, if you can take yourself back to Mark's Gospel, Jesus takes Peter, James and John, and he takes them up the mountainside, and before their eyes, he is transfigured. That is, he's metamorphosized, he's transformed. He's shown to the disciples for a moment in the glorious state of the age to come. He becomes dazzling white before them. Now, the other place that this word is used is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and and there Paul's talking about those whose minds have closed to the gospel as if a veil covers their eyes so they're in darkness and can't see the glory of Christ. He says this in chapter 3, verse 16. You can see similarities here in language. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Being transformed, being metamorphosized, same word that we have here. So this, then, is what we're being changed into, transformed from what we were into what we are in Christ. Paul in our verse in Romans 12 verse 2 explains what this actually will look like. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and here we go, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, we need to take a moment just to think about what this means. When we speak of the will of God in the way that we talk about the will of God, we often mean one of three things. We can use the phrase, the will of God, first of all, to mean something like guidance. So what what we should do next in our lives. What does God want for me in terms of the next step I should take, what job I should go for, or where I should live, or who I should marry, and so on and so on. Now, that's not the meaning here. The second way that we can use the phrase, the will of God, is, what we can mean by that is what's called God's will of decree, or his sovereign will. That is, his great overarching rule over all things. And we've thought about that sense in Romans. We thought about it in chapter 9, when we thought about God's electing purposes, His will, in that sense of of choosing whom he saves, his will cannot be thwarted by human beings. His sovereign purposes, they always come to pass. That's his will of decree or his sovereign will. And it could mean that here in this verse. But I think there's a third sense, and this is the correct one, and this is it. That the will of God here refers to his moral will what's sometimes called his will of command. And this is his will in the sense of what he wants us to do, what he commands us to do. So whereas God's sovereign will, his his overarching rule over all things, whereas that can't be thwarted, God's will in this sense, his will of command, is not always done. And we know that because we often break his commands, don't we? We don't do what he wants us to do. We fail to keep them. 
And we do that because we're conformed to the world. So what Paul here is saying is that the transformation that God is bringing about in us is to make us like Christ in that we begin to love and keep his commands. We begin to say, as Paul says in Romans 7, in verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. We begin to discern, to understand that the commands of God really are good, that they really are acceptable and perfect, and we begin to live them out. And that's what he's now going to spell out in practical terms throughout the rest of the letter from chapter 12 all the way through to chapter 16. Put simply, that the Christian is a changed person who keeps changing in every part of their lives. They become less and less like the world and more and more like Jesus. Victorian Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, he put it like this. It is, as it were, to enter upon a new existence, to have a new mind, a new heart, new views, new principles, new tastes, new affections, new likings, new dislikings, new fears, new joys, new sorrows, new love to things once hated, new hatred to things once loved, new thoughts of God and ourselves and the world and the life to come, and salvation. Not conformed to the world, but transformed in every way to be like Jesus and keep God's perfect will. But how does that happen? How is the change actually made? And that's the third and final part this evening. How we make the change. Just have a look at verse 2 again and see what you think. How is the change made? In fact, ask this question. In which part of us does this change begin? In which part of us does this change begin? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, so the the change begins not with the actions, but in the mind. Nonconformity with the world begins as we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. Our thinking changes first. And how does that happen? Well, three means of change. All these are working together, but three means of change. The gospel, the spirit, and the word. First of all, the gospel. See, it's in view of the mercy of God that our minds are renewed. Verse 2 is connected to verse 1, and that's pretty obvious, um, but it's true. A full view of God's mercy, that is the gospel, will transform our minds, which will then transform our lives. And Paul here, I think, is first of all, he's referring to the whole of chapters 1 to 11 in the book of Romans. See, as our minds think on this wonderful book, our lives will be changed to all-life worship. As we see the abundant and glorious mercy of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, our whole view of 
the world changes. Our whole view of ourselves changes. And we find born in us this desire to live to please him. Now, for those of you who've been studying this book in small groups and over the last few Sunday evenings in this last year, and you've seen the gospel in Romans, have you not found that to be true? That you're clearer in your minds as to what sin is, for example, of your fallen state? Are you not sharper as to what the gospel actually is, that justification by faith alone, not by works, so that your pride and your arrogance have been removed? And is not your view of God's character richer for what you've read and thought about? And are you not more determined to endure suffering and to root out sin as you've seen what God has done from his heart of mercy towards you. So that's the first thing in terms of how we change. Romans itself is changing us, and it has been over the last year as a church and as individuals as we thought on the mercy of God in the gospel. That's the first means of change, the gospel, particularly that in Romans. Now, secondly, the means of change is the Spirit. Renewal of the mind is the work of the Spirit. Now, Paul connects the work of the Spirit with the mind of the believer in Romans chapter 8. He's done this already. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. See, our minds are in a pretty sorry state. They are, we've seen that in Romans One, we are of a debased mind. We are darkened in our understanding. But the Spirit of God, it shines light into dark places. Praise Him for that. So that we see the truth about God, and we see the truth about ourselves, and about what's good and pleasing and perfect in His will for us. See, change in us can't be done by our own wisdom, or by our own intelligence, or by our own willpower. The Holy Spirit of God is the agent of change who brings renewal. And practically what that means is that we need to pray, doesn't it? To pray that the Spirit would go to work in us, that he would bring in the light into our minds. But then how will the Spirit answer that prayer? How does he specifically do that? And that's the third means of change which is the word. He does so through his word. Now here's where where Psalm 1, I think, will help us. If you just want to look back at Psalm 1, just to remind yourself what it says. Notice that the the first Psalm, Psalm 1, it begins with the concept of non-conformity to the world. You spot that? Verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. See, nonconformity to the world. The psalmist wants the believer to close their ears to the influences of the world, to not listen to their voices any longer. 
But he doesn't stop there. He wants us not just to stop listening to them, but to replace those voices with another voice. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Same phrase Paul uses in Romans 7. For the new mind of a believer, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And how does it show itself, this delight that he has? Well, on his law, he meditates day and night. The believer thinks on, he dwells on, he turns over in his mind the law of God as he reads God's word in the regular pattern of his devotional life, day and night. As he does that ordinary work, he discovers that that renews his mind and transforms his life. Now the psalmist, because he's, it's poetry, rather than use the word renewal here, he uses a picture. This is a picture of it. Verse 3. What happens to this man as he does this ordinary work of dwelling on, meditating on the word of God? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff's the the dry, dusty remains of the crop. It's useless, it has no product, it, it blows away in the wind. But the person who plants themselves in the fertile soil of the word of God, watered by the spirit of God, discovers that their life begins to bear much fruit. Godly fruit. The word, as they test and discern it, as they, and they find that it is good food, it grows them into the will of God, his good, pleasing and perfect will. The gospel, spirit and the word are what brings the change in the life of the believer Now, I began tonight by referring to the changed life of John Newton. Newton's story is, is an extreme one. I mean, not many of you, I think, are slave traders. It's an extreme one. But there are countless others like him. And if you look around, some in this room, many in this room will testify to this, that Christians are changed people and changing people to the glory of God. How so? Well, listen again to Newton's words. It is certain that I am not what I ought to be. He's not a finished product. But blessed be God, I am not what I once was. God has mercifully brought me up out of the deep miry clay and set my feet upon the rock, Christ Jesus. He has saved my soul. And now it is my heart's desire to extol and honour his matchless, free, sovereign and distinguishing grace because by the grace of God I am what I am. It is my heart's great joy to ascribe my salvation entirely to the grace of God. Newton credits his changed life solely to the grace and mercy of God that he once cried out for in distress 
but then which over several years took hold of his heart and life as he meditated on the gospel and as the Spirit renewed him through the word. Over time, God's mercy changed him through and through. And may the same changes be wrought in us to the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask him to change us. Lord God, as we think once more of your mercy, what you have done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ to bring us to salvation, we're just filled with gratitude once again. We know what we were and we know that we didn't deserve your rescue and yet we have it out of your great love and mercy towards us. And so we thank you. And Lord God, as we've been thinking of this, this verse, we, we are aware that we are too often conformed to the world. We confess that before you. We know that our hearts and our attitudes and our behaviours are not always pleasing to you. And so, Lord God, we ask that by your Spirit and through your Word, you would renew our minds and transform our lives that we may bring you glory in all things. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.